Welcome to Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers, where we talk with and about the foreign banking community in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, and please be sure to subscribe so you never miss a beat with the IIB. Welcome back to another episode of Bank Talk. I'm your host, Bridget Policine, CEO of the Institute of International Bankers, and I'm honored and excited to be able to spend a few minutes today talking with Bill Dudley. Bill is a distinguished economist with nearly 40 years of combined industry and regulatory experience. Most recently, he has joined Treliant, one of the IIB's most valued associate professional members, as a board member and senior advisor. Before joining Treliant, Bill was the 10th president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, where he was responsible for all of the bank's activities, including bank supervision and regulation, of course, monetary policy and payment services. Bill had impeccable timing, joining the bank in 2007, right in time to grapple with the great financial crisis and the policy response, including implementation of the Dodd-Frank Act and championing a culture and conduct initiative. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So you just had a piece published in Bloomberg in which you conclude that the legislative and regulatory reforms implemented in response to the global financial crisis worked relatively well, allowing the banking system to sustain lending amid the economic shock caused by the pandemic, intermediating between savers and borrowers, and helping businesses manage financial risks. We wanted to see if you could get a little bit into the weeds with us here. What regulatory reforms do you think were most significant with respect to the banking sector? Do you think more needs to be done? And, you know, we're always interested in hearing specifics around foreign banks. Well, I think that generally uh, the reforms that were done for the banking system, you know, after the great financial crisis have been successful. And we sort of have proof uh, through the pandemic. A uh, tremendous amount of stress, the most rapid uh, and deepest decline in economic activity ever in the United States. Uh, and the banking system has really come through uh, with you know, flying colors, at least to date. Uh, you know, the changes that were, that were important were higher capital required, higher quality capital, in other words, a focus on common equity, liquidity buffers, and capital stress test. I think those are the things that were the most important in terms of making the banking system in the United States much more robust. You know, there's been no loss of confidence in banks uh, during this uh, pandemic. Uh, banks have been able to sustain their living. So I think that the lesson uh, is going to be, gee, that was good. Uh, we actually got the outcome that we, that, that we desired. And some people will say, well, this, you know, people are going to roll back regulation of banking. I don't think so. Uh, I think that what we want is a banking system that can perform not just in good times, but also in bad times. Uh, because that's really what's important to sustain uh, the economy and sustain households and businesses, their access to credit. Uh, so I think that it's worked quite well for the banking part of the, not, of the financial system. The non-bank portion of the financial system, I think that we've fallen short. And I think you, we, we know we've fallen short because we see all these uh, you know, special interventions by the Fed in March and April uh, designed to prop up parts of the 
financial system uh, that were not robust. So think about the interventions in the treasury market, uh, buying massive amounts of treasury securities, interventions in the agency mortgage-backed securities market, mortgage REITs were under a lot of pressure, uh, interventions to support the corporate bond market and the high yield debt markets, uh, because what the problem there was uh, people were trying to sell assets and there was a lack of liquidity. And so that was causing uh, prices to get uh, unusually depressed relative to the fundamentals. Um, I think also the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which was established uh, uh, by the Dodd-Frank Act to sort of deal with problems in the non-bank financial sector has been basically ineffective. So I think we need to really take a look at the non-bank financial sector and think about oh, what can we do here to make that safer going forward. Well, I know um, in a speech, I guess it was just last week, um, Vice Chair Quarles, you know, detailed the links that the Fed had to go to intervene in financial markets in order to support the prime money funds, commercial paper market, you know, corporate bond fund. Um, and he, he also talked um, in that speech about the sort of dysfunction in the treasury market. He uh, said that the FSB, which of course, you know, he chairs is going to be reviewing um, reviewing those vulnerabilities and define a work program to address them. So, I mean, obviously you endorse that and, you know, called out the um, kind of need for the FSOC to do the same. What's your thought about that broader FSB look? Well, I think it's you know great that they're going to do it, and I think it was essentially inevitable. I mean, the the, the surprise last spring was not so much the pressure on the corporate bond market, but was the fact that the U.S. Treasury market, the most liquid right. market in the world, was performing extremely poorly. I mean, you would have thought that this was the market that would perform well because people would be fleeing to to safety and to to quality. So that's you know something that you know in, you know the Fed's going to look at very very deeply. I also think there are a lot of issues in terms of you know how we uh, you know what what the liquidity rules are for money market mutual funds, what the liquidity rules for bond mutual funds. You know, if, a, if a if a bond mutual fund is invested in highly illiquid assets, you probably don't want to promise the investors overnight liquidity because the fund actually isn't going to be able to generate overnight liquidity without selling a lot of assets at fire sale prices and depressing the prices that people are going to get. And if people know that's going to happen, uh, that's going to incent them to, 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 to withdraw their, mo their money even sooner. Uh, right. And so you have a really bad incentives uh, system in place there that can actually uh, facilitate panic. My own personal view is that if you're invested in a, a fund that has very illiquid assets uh, and you really need overnight liquidity, you probably shouldn't be invested in that asset class in the first place. So I think a change there is something that we really need to look at. For the treasury market, you know, I think the Fed is going to look very carefully about providing some sort of backstop uh, standing repo facility. Uh, you know, I think the, conceptually that makes a lot of sense, but the devil's in the details. You know, who has access to it? What are the terms and conditions? So there'll be a lot of work. This is not something that's going to arrive quickly. This is something that I think is going to arrive slowly, but I think it will be forthcoming because, you know, if you know that something's in place, and that the Fed is there as a backstop of last resort, uh, that reduces the incentive to panic. When you don't know what, whether something's gonna be in place, which is a situation we found ourselves in March and April, uh, that encourages you to, you know, you know fly, to, fly to liquidity as fast as you can, uh, and then, and then you know, see what happens. 
that's not a that's not, again not good incentives. So I mean, some of that, at least you know, the repo market. There were some stresses be before COVID back in September, yeah. and you sort of how are those related? Well, those were, I think, were from a very different source and one that I thought was much less concerning. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened in uh, September was that uh, the, the Fed's uh, supply of reserves in the banking system was shrinking, uh, and there was a shock to that supply of reserves as the Treasury auction settled, and there was a big corporate tax payment. And what happened was banks found on that day, that Monday morning that uh, and afternoon, that they didn't have enough reserves relative to what they wanted, and so they started to bid up the price of repo, uh, and, and that was a surprise to everyone. Now, what happened on Tuesday was, boy, I didn't know I was going to be surprised on Monday. On Tuesday morning, I want to have even more liquidity than I had on Monday. And so that kept the whole thing going. But that one was you know, easily solved. All the Fed had to do was uh, increase the supply of reserves in the banking system, which they did by buying treasury bills and engaging in open market repo transactions. Um, so that one you know, doesn't really uh, you know, bother me. I think that was just sort of you know, that was sort of an inevitable uh, consequence of the change in the monetary policy regime that occurred after the great financial crisis, where the Fed relied on paying interest on excess reserves and had a lot of excess reserves in the system. And as the balance sheet was being normalized, that supply of excess reserves mm -hmm. was shrinking. And never, nobody knew how low was too low because there have been a lot of regulatory changes that increased the demand for reserves, like the LCR, uh, liquidity coverage ratio, like uh, requirements to, uh, to to be able to wind up a firm uh, uh, if it get, got into difficult resolution planning. You needed to have uh, liquidity for the resolution. Uh, and so that created a, a false sense that there was enough liquidity in the system when it turned out in September there wasn't. But that was a very easy problem to solve. Mm -hmm. The one in March and April, much more complex. Uh, I think people are still trying to get to the bottom of what actually happened. I mean, the original story was Hedge funds were very levered. They were in these basis trades where they were long cash treasury, short uh, treasury futures. Uh, they got caught. Uh, they had to sell. Uh, but people now who have done a deeper dive into this uh, su suggest that that's maybe part of the problem, but it's not the whole problem. There's also issues in terms of the bank's uh, dealer's capacity to expand their balance sheet to provide uh, uh, funding uh, in a time of, of, of stress. I mean, the reality is, is the Fed is the only one who actually has a very elastic balance sheet, even during periods of stress. And so I think the Fed needs to think about what can we do to make sure that, we're, that people know we're going to be there uh, if, if things get really, really scary. And if people know the Fed's going to be there, that will reduce uh, the, the likelihood of getting into that situation in the first place. People will, will be calmer as a consequence. You, I, I just want to go back um, when we talked about, when you talked about some of the most important, you know, uh, post-GFC reforms, you talked about stress tests and, you know, the stress test regime has um, changed over the past, I guess, two years. Um, but now, mo most recently, you know, we sort of have the repeat with the capital resubmissions. Um, and, you know, in uh, ahead of that, the Fed uh, for 
Q3 and now Q4 has continued the prohibition on stock buybacks and restrictions on payment of dividends. Curious, you know, what you uh, what you think about those uh, those actions? Well, I think the you know Fed is being prudent because we don't really know how the coronavirus pandemic is going to proceed. We don't know. Uh, when a vaccine that's actually works is going to be available and broadly distributed. Uh, so when you don't know uh, how the economy is going to evolve, you want to make sure that banks have enough capital because the consequence of having too much capital is far less dire than the consequence of not having enough. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I understand that bankers want to be able to pay their dividends and buy back shares, but, you know, this is just, in my opinion, not that big a deal because if they actually do have too much capital a year from now, they'll be able to pay it out uh, in share buybacks and dividends. And so this is a temporary you know, period, if things go well, of banks having a little bit more capital than they may, may ultimately need. But having a little bit more capital than they may ultimately need guards against a situation where they pay it out, the situation evolves in a much worse way, and then people are like, whoa, why did I, why did I, why did I do that for? And if banks were to force to, to, to raise more capital in a very adverse environment, that cost of capital would be far greater than just retaining the dividends uh, you know, that, that, that's happening in the third and fourth quarter. So I think it's prudent. I think it's prudent. I understand that it's frustrating to bankers, but I think I would be of, of the same view. Now, the reality is that if every bank has a little bit more capital, that doesn't just make that bank safer makes other banks safer, it makes the entire banking system safer, it makes the financial system safer, it makes the economy uh, less prone to, 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 to violent shocks. And so, you know, there's a, you know, as economists would put it, there's an externality there. If I'm, if I'm really well capitalized, that doesn't just help me, that helps others. And that's, the Fed, you know, needs to internalize that in terms of their decision making. So, uh, you know, we, one one point we've made about that the IAB is that the you know the intermediate holding companies are in a somewhat different position because of course you know they're trying to return capital usually once a year to their parent who's subject yeah. to their own uh, you know capital requirements that are uniform and robust globally now um, and so it does seem like that. Uh, merits a, a perhaps more uh, careful look. It's probably worth uh, for the Fed to do a deeper dive there to sort of see if there are unintended consequences. Right. I mean, it's not like we anticipated that we're going to go through a period like this. Uh, and so I think it's, it is fair to, to, to ask the question, you know, are, comp are, are global banks being constrained unfairly because of the structures put in place in individual uh, geographic uh, regimes. So I think it's definitely worth a look. Now, I think it, you know, in, in reality, it's probably not creating a lot of harm because it's not just the Fed that's putting restrictions in place. The restrictions in place are putting it, being put in place pretty broadly. So uh, the parent company uh, who would like to get the IHC dividend payment uh, doesn't need the dividend payment as much as before because it is being- They can't pay out right now, right. Themselves. So, so, I mean, if obviously if the IHC restrictions lasted longer than the restrictions on the parent company, then that would be constraining in terms of the parent company being able to you know, continue to pay uh, their, their, their dividends. But I don't, see, I don't see there's a real conflict 
in the current. current uh, although it's not, I mean, those dividends could be returned to the parent and deployed in other ways, yeah. not necessarily. Oh, a oh, yeah, that, ra that that raises a little broader issue. I mean, I think that the current regime, you know, does result in a lot of trapped capital and trapped mm -hmm. liquidity. Uh, which does represent an additional regulatory burden uh, on global financial institutions. And I think it would be great to look at where those pain points are and think about whether there are things that can be done to ease those pain points. Because, you know, I don't think that was really fully anticipated the degree where that, some of those constraints might bind. That's great. Uh, turning away from the <laughs> pandemic a little and the and uh, sort of re response um, to that, there are some other uh, topics we wanted to explore. It in your time um, as as New York Fed president, you made strengthening bank culture and conduct a real priority. Um, thoughts about where we are with that and and what more might need to be done, both from a, a regulatory perspective as well as, you know, a, a industry perspective? Well, there's a lot of things I think that could be done. I mean, I think, I think, look, I think we've made some progress in the sense that people understand that culture is important because that drives conduct. Um, you know, I think that every bank needs to look at the incentives uh, that they have out there for their, that their employees face and make sure that those incentives are compatible with the behaviors that they want uh, their employees to, to take. So that's something that every bank uh, professional and executive can do themselves. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's, that's about how do we pay people? How do we promote people? Uh, how do we penalize people uh, when they have compliance violations? Uh, you know, you wanna make sure that the regime you have in place is consistent with the behaviors that you're trying to, to achieve. Another thing I think we could do uh, is, 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 is uh, try to do more to uh, prevent the uh, rolling bad apple problem. Uh, when people are bad actors and then they, and then they are forced out of uh, given institutions, there's sort of this tacit, you know, we won't say anything bad about that person because we're worried about that legal liability. And so that aids that person in getting a job at another financial institution. Um, you know, the, you know, I think that uh, a registry, uh, you know, similar to what you have in the securities industry, uh, might be helpful. Uh, so bad, bad actors can't move from one organization to another uh, through their career. That they're, you know, that would that would result in a little bit bigger penalty too from uh, bad behavior. So I think that's something worth looking at. Third thing that I think it's worth looking at is for banks to do something a little bit more collectively to see how they're doing relative to other banks. So for example, in the UK, they, they have a, a, a survey that goes out to a large number of banking institutions and they, and they can see how uh, their results are compared to their, their, their peer group. Uh, we don't really have anything like that in the United States. And I think something that was done across the industry so, you could, so a bank could sort of see, how am I doing I mean, I, I, you know, relative to others? Where am I overachieving? Where am I underachieving? Might also be helpful in just getting higher quality information. And if the survey is done by an outside party too, I think that increases the chance for higher quality uh, responses. You know, there's always some people in an organization that are skeptical of management when management says, these, these, all this information that you're giving me is confidential. 
I think if you have a third party and it's a little bit more arm's length, you might get a higher quality of information. So I think there's a number of things uh, we could continue to do. I mean, you know, you, you read the paper just like I do. I mean, it doesn't look like bank conduct issues are sort of over. Uh, there still seem to be, you know, new cases uh, that are sometimes similar to old cases. And you're sort of surprised, like, boy, I thought, I thought you saw those problems in this trading operation over here. Wouldn't you have thought, given that you saw it over here, you would have looked across your entire organization to make sure that it wasn't happening anywhere else in your organization? And for some firms, at least, it seems like the answer is no, which I think is unfortunate. You know, the, your um, point about the survey is interesting. We had a, our annual risk management regulatory compliance seminar um, virtually earlier today. And one of the questions that came up, and it's come up in other contexts, is on culture and conduct. Like, how do you objectively measure progress? I mean, I think, you know, people are looking for, and not necessarily, you know, metrics from a regulatory standpoint, but metrics that can be used internally to be able to sort of see, you know, are we tackling the problems? Are our initiatives um, bringing the desired results, you know, internally in the near point where you can compare yourselves to other institutions. But before we leave culture and conduct, I want to ask one other question, um, which is, you know, where you think the um, uh, diversity, equality, and inclusion um, initiatives might fit into this larger culture and conduct discussion, both, you know, what regulators can be doing um, to promote them, to promote those in the agency, as well as how that might uh, benefit banks. Well, look, I think, you know, I've always said that diversity is in a business person's interest because if you have diverse groups, you're gonna actually get more perspectives and you're gonna get higher quality output. So, you know, people always act like diversity is some sort of cost that's being right. imposed on them. No, it's actually a good, it's, it, 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 it's a good. And, you know, to the extent that people are discriminated against in our society, those people are undervalued. <laughs> so in some ways, they're a particularly good deal if you, if you can somehow, you know, not, 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 not have that, those implicit biases. So I think you know working on diversity is uh, you know hugely important. And I think I think that you know the, there's a lot of things that you know institutions can do, and maybe even regulators can do. I mean, you know, just ask very simple questions. You know, when you hire people, do you have a diverse uh, interview slate to hire them? When you hire people, was there a diverse group of candidates? Uh, and then how do you track how the diverse candidates are moving through your through your through their careers in, in, in your institution? Are they getting advanced uh, at the same rate or, 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 or comparable rate to other other groups? And are they staying or are they leaving? I mean, are, you know, I think, you know, I think that, you know, making sure that you have sort of good quality information and good metrics. Are you, are you paying people comparably? I mean, you know, for years, I mean, I think it's been pretty obvious that there's lots of discrimination against women uh, on, on pay. Uh, in the workforce, those things are, you know, definitely you can, you know, you have data and you can analyze it. Uh, you know, but, but banks are sometimes shy about doing that because they're afraid, almost almost like afraid what what they'll find. But I think that you need to just sort of be brave and you know find out what's really going on, and then you know if you do have a problem, then address that problem rather than 
you know, being the proverbial ostrich, putting put your head in the sand, hoping that you don't have a problem. So, you know, we, we can't record a podcast episode with a, an economist of your stature without talking about economic outlook. Just, you know, thoughts about what the recovery looks like, you know, the K, the W, the V, the I don't even know what else. Um, you know, what do you think? And then thoughts about, uh, you know, Ch Chairman Powell has been very open in in encouraging <laughs> Congress to um, take up a, a stimulus package. But just, you know, your thoughts on the economy. Well, let's start with that last piece. Uh, you know, the, why, why is the Fed so interested in more fiscal policy stimulus? I think it's very simple. The Fed, they're not out of ammunition in the sense they could always buy more securities, mm -hmm. they could do more forward guidance, they could even do yield curve control, pinning you know, yields to a particular level. But even if they do more in terms of policy, the efficacy of monetary policy in terms of the impact of that, those policy moves on the economy is rapidly diminishing. So if the Fed bought, you know, 200 billion of treasury securities a month rather than you know, 100 billion of treasury securities a month, would it really have much impact on the economy? No. Uh, you know, 10 year treasury yields might be you know, 55 basis points rather than 70 ba basis points. And that would have you know, virtually a trivial effect on the trajectory of the economy. So the fiscal, you know, the fisc there is a very definite need for fiscal policy stimulus uh, for two reasons. One, monetary policy has done most of what it can do the Fed has made financial conditions accommodative, and it has made sure that financial markets work well. That's basically what monetary policies can, can do. So the Fed has basically done, done most of what it can accomplish. Uh, so fiscal policy needs to take up the slack. And the second reason why we need fiscal policy stimulus is we really are falling off a cliff. As we speak, at the end of July, that was it for Paycheck Protection Program. That was it for uh, unemployment uh, compensation benefits with the extra $600 a week. Uh, the, the, the checks made, mailed out to households earlier were one-time checks. So a huge decline in fiscal policy stimulus in August, starting in August. Now, why haven't we seen that yet? You know, the effects of that. Well, we haven't seen the effects of that for two reasons. Number one, the, the amount of fiscal stimulus was absolutely enormous. If you look at how much actually entered the U.S. economy May, June, July. So the savings rate actually went up people actually had more money than they had before. And so that allowed them to sustain themselves for a while after, after we start to fall off the fiscal cliff. Uh, and the second reason why we haven't fallen off the fiscal cliff is the economy has been gradually reopened over the, over the same period of time. And so as you reopen the economy, uh, more people can go back to work, they have income from their job, and that helps support things. But I, I think you know, every week and month we go on uh, with, without any more fiscal stimulus, uh, I think you're gonna to start to start to see it in terms of the economic data. Um, I don't know what's gonna happen in terms of the economy because it really depends on, are we gonna get a fiscal stimulus package? When? Uh, on this day that we're having this interview, uh, this is the deadline that Nancy Pelosi set uh, for negotiating a big fiscal package. And so we still, as we sit here today, we don't know if we're gonna get another big fiscal package before the election or, or not. We also don't know the election outcome and, and how that plays into fiscal policy after uh, the election. And lastly, we don't know the course of the pandemic itself. I mean, you know, to me, you know, what happens in terms of the vaccine front 
uh, is probably more important than fiscal policy stimulus in terms of actually driving the, the trajectory of the economy over the next year. If we get vaccines that are actually quite, you know, work well, and we can roll them out quite quickly, uh, then I could see the economy getting back to, you know, a reasonable place, you know, certainly by late spring, early summer next year. But if the vaccines are, don't work very well, or people are reluctant to, you know, to take them, uh, then it's going to be drawn out quite a bit longer. Um, I think the, you know, the Fed's forecast, which is sort of a, it's not a V-shaped recovery, it's sort of a, you know, the Nike swoosh is how a lot oh, Right, of that's the latest, the swoosh. <laughs> so, you know, you have a sharp down, right. you have a, a gradual, you have an up that gradually slows, and so you're going up, but you're going up less slowly over time. Um, that's really the Fed's forecast. I mean, the Fed basically has a forecast that the unemployment rate is going to be well above where we were early this year through uh, 2023. Uh, they have the uh, unemployment rate staying, you know, high, you know, relatively high through that entire period, and they have inflation staying low and the Fed being on hold throughout that uh, forecast horizon. So that's probably the most likely scenario. But around that, just huge amounts of uh, uncertainty. So. Yeah. I, I personally, probably, if I was thinking about the economic forecast, I'd probably spend more time thinking about the coronavirus pandemic and the vaccines and their deployment than I would, you know, thinking about the economy sort of independent of those things. I saw earlier today that uh, Speaker Pelosi sort of redefined deadline to say that, you know, the Tuesday deadline is like, you know, are we, is there progress, are we making any progress? And it kind of reminded me of my various ineffectual parenting deadlines around, you know, cleaning rooms, <laughs> getting homework done, whatever. But fingers crossed that, um, that, that they can move forward. Yeah, I mean, so, the, yeah, I mean the problem there is that they're just, you know, there's, there's fundamental disagreement, uh, both on size, but also in terms of composition. I mean, some people act like the whole debate is about size, but it's also about what are you going to use the money for? Yeah. And one thing the Democrats want to do is they want to have some aid to state and local governments, sizable aid to state and local governments. And that, for some reason, is a real sticking point for the Republicans. And you know, I have to say, I don't quite understand why it's such a sticking point, because if states, states and local governments don't get aid, they're going to start laying off teachers uh, and firemen and policemen. And so that's going to have its own independent downward effect on the economy. Uh, it's, that seems like it's pretty easy to avert just by providing some uh, fiscal stimulus. Uh, that, you know, that, that sort of red state, blue state around state and local government. I mean, I, I know in the great financial crisis, you know, that was one of the biggest drags was the um, municipalities having to, yes. you know, contract. And um, so, yeah. And I also saw, at least today, um, that there were reports that election security, m money for election security, which had been, I think, one of the, you know, Democrats, or at least the speakers kind of, you know, red lines, that that had been dropped and I thought, well, maybe that's because it's October 20th, like the oh, election's God. almost here. So that, that's like one that's a pretty easy give. It's probably not actually possible to get the Right, exactly. Couldn't get out the door fast enough. You got the check on, you know, two days before the election, what would you do with it? <laughs> exactly. Um, so the, the last question um, I have 
for you today is um, climate change. And so, you know, we've, we've read, um, you know, there's commentators taking the view, you had mentioned FSOC and sort of their role, but taking the view that financial regulators should be looking at climate risk as a systemic financial risk. Um, that's certainly been, um, you know, more the approach that we're seeing um, out of the Europeans. And I'm just, you know, like to hear your thoughts about um, what's the what's the proper role right now? What should regulators be doing? You know, there's I know there's exploratory uh, stress tests that are being undertaken. But, you know, people rightly point out that that's a very complicated, uh, you know, kind of bringing the science into financial stress testing. So as a former regulator, I'm really curious how, how you think about that. Well, I guess the way I think about it is uh, the climate changes very rapidly uh, in adverse ways. What you have to worry about is you have a lot of stranded capital. In other words, you have things that you've built that would be perfectly good in the old climate, but in the new climate, they're potentially even underwater. Uh, so think about so so think about you know seaside development uh, today, and people who have you know mortgage books outstanding to that seaside development, uh, and then you know water levels rise by two three feet, number of you know hurricanes and typhoons that hit go up you know, significantly in the, in the severity of those hurricanes and typhoons is much worse. The, the, the value of that capital uh, could go down uh, precipitously. And as we know, banks lend typically against collateral. And so if you have a big decline in collateral values, you, can, you, know, you could run into a situation where people would just say, well, rather than repay the loan, I'm just gonna walk away. Uh, so that's the thing, that's where I think that climate change really leads, needs to look at is, is what, what's the risk of having uh, adverse changes in the climate that cause uh, lots of stranded capital that result in uh, you know, significant exposures uh, that, that uh, firms need to, you know, I mean, oil and gas is a good example. I mean, you know, if, if things change very, very quickly, I mean, you could imagine, depending on, you know, tax policy and a bunch of other things that we could mm -hmm. be moving away from the internal combustion engine, gasoline engine for cars pretty fast uh, in the next 20 years. And then you sort of ask yourself the question, well, what does that mean then for all the oil and gas investment? Now, obviously you're still gonna use oil and gas presumably for flying and other things of that sort of plastics production, things of that sort. But, you know, that's another example where things could move very, 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 very quickly. Um, you, know, you, you know, you think about the oil and gas, I mean, uh, the cost of, uh, uh, batteries, uh, electric batteries is coming down very, 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 very quickly. Um, and uh, the, co the cost of renewable energy is also coming down very, very quickly. And so you can sort of see a situation where, you know, electric cars become, you know, not just competitive with gasoline powered cars, but actually become cheaper, uh, you know, 10 or 15, 20 years down the road. So the whole thing could happen faster than what mm -hmm. If it happens faster than what people anticipate, then there's going to be losses. Someone's going to be bearing losses if they have exposure to the wrong uh, set of counterparties. You know, this is one you, you were talking about um, 
enhancing diversity as a good business decision. This one, the, the climate risk response is uh, interesting because, you know, it seems obviously people are predicting, well, I mean, it's not a prediction. It's if there's a change in administration that that would be more of a priority under Vice President Biden. But kind of putting all that, the sort of official governmental response aside, you know, it seems like the market is leading on this. Demands from institutional investors are leading on this. And we especially see with some of the, you know, larger global banks, they're in in um, com com making these commitments outside of any kind of uh, regulatory requirement. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously the right brand. I mean, you want to be on the side of the environment rather than not on the side of the environment. Uh, but it's also probably, you know, I, I, I suspect that, you know, it's this, you know, to the extent this is happening faster and more powerfully than people expect, then it's also going to start to show up in terms of relative asset returns. You know, the clean portfolio is going to do better than the dirty portfolio mm -hmm. going forward. And so, you know, for a while there, it looked like, well, okay, there's a, potentially a conflict between investment returns and, you know, and, right. and having a sustainable environment. Now it's looking like there may be much less of a conflict. And in fact, the two might be completely compatible. And so I think that's made uh, banks and other financial institutions take a fresh look at this and say, you know, this might be just the right thing to do, not just for you know, social reasons, but it might be also the right business decision to make just from a profit and loss perspective. And I think that's great. I mean, I think if you know, businesses sort of get on board too, that can also force change much more rapidly. I mean, I think you know, if the Democrats uh, you know, get the White House and have control of Congress, I mean, I think we're gonna be hearing a lot of talk about a carbon tax. Uh, I think that to make that carbon tax more palatable, we'll probably re rebate the proceeds of that carbon tax to households and businesses. So end of the day, you'll change relative prices, but your check tax burden won't actually go up. Uh, obviously, this is going to be very controversial, though, because if you live in Montana, you probably consume more you know, fossil fuels than if you live in New York City. And so there, there will be regional disparities here that are also going to be, need to be addressed. Bill, is there something I didn't ask you that I should have? I think we covered most of the, the important things. I mean, I think, you know, what, you know, just to recap from where, where we were at the yeah. stop, top, I mean, I think, you know, bankers should be pretty pleased with how they've come through the pandemic to, to date. I mean, obviously we're not over yet, but, you know, if you think about 2008, 2009, total loss of confidence in the financial system and financial counterparties. Now, no loss of confidence in banks as, as, as counterparties. Uh, even in a period of deep stress and uncertainty. So that just tells you that we're in a, a, a much better place. You know, we found in 2007, 8, 9, if you lose trust, uh, things break down very, very quickly. Uh, right now, I think we have trust, and I think we're going to maintain the trust because of all the changes that we made uh, post the great financial crisis for the banking system. Lots of work to, to do on the non-banking part. If when you look at um, sort of where you know, with that in mind, and now your um, uh, the Fed, you know, the the I guess I'm curious about this from two angles. One, if you're someone who um, has been critical 
of the Fed's regulatory tailoring and some of the modifications, you know, Volcker rule that the um, that the regulatory agencies have undertaken. Um, you know, do you think it, it seems like the performance in this unprecedented, really, you know, crisis would sort of say, you know, there was calibration, but there was not a dismantling in any sense of the world word. We can feel, you know, we, they can feel pretty good about it. The flip side, the other side of the question is looking at all what's happened, are there certain things you would point to and say with respect to the banking system, you know, the Fed should probably shore up this or that or, you know, maybe got this wrong? I think there's a few things. Uh, number one, they need to think about, okay, when you're having a period of intense stress, what does that do in terms of things like risk-weighted assets? Uh, and think, you know, that... that if risk-weighted assets go off just because the stress in the environment has, has increased, is that a good thing? Because you're basically tightening the capital requirements just because of some calculation about, the, about risk. Another thing is uh, the leverage ratio. You know, the Fed uh, granted an exemption for the leverage ratio. They basically said, okay, we're now going to not count reserves and treasury securities against the leverage ratio right now. They haven't said, you know, is that permanent or is that temporary? I personally think that reserves should never have been part of the leverage ratio because banks don't determine how many reserves they have to hold. The Federal Reserve determines how many reserves they have to hold by the Fed's choices in terms of how big its balance sheet is. So reserves should have always been exempt from the leverage ratio. So I think looking, I think they want to look at, you know, post this, the, the, the coronavirus pandemic, they want to look at where did we, where did the regulations have unintended consequences that were actually not happy with and then sort of say well what could we do to mitigate those in the future and i think you know, there's some pro-cyclical aspects of mm -hmm. the regulatory regime that i think you might want to take a look at and certainly you you definitely want to take a look at the leverage ratio because you know the leverage ratio is you know the only reason why we're doing the leverage ratio at all is because people don't have that much confidence on the risk-weighted assets uh, calculation i always thought the better solution was to do the risk-weighted asset calculation better, <laughs> better right? <laughs> have it be more credible. If it had, right. if it had more credible calculation of risk-weighted assets, then why do you need the leverage ratio? The leverage ratio is a really blunt instrument. And I, and I didn't have a problem if the leverage ratio was not binding. Uh, you know, in other words, if the leverage ratio was set a level that you know, banks weren't at the leverage ratio, it was sort of a belt and suspenders, but you know, the belt was holding you up and the leverage ratio was suspenders and it was just there if things got really, really bad. Uh, but for a lot of big big banking institutions, the leverage ratio is the binding constraint, yeah. and I don't think that's a particularly great outcome because it you know it discourages the kind of things that we saw in the spring. You know, you know, dealers wouldn't be willing to do repo against treasury securities because it's going to drive up the size of their balance sheet and make the leverage ratio more binding, even though it wasn't really increasing risk to the banking system. Uh, and it was actually by by them not being able to doing it was creating financial stress within financial markets. That's an example of something that I think the Fed's going to take a very close look at. Amen. <laughs> um, so that's we're going to conclude our podcast. I want to thank you again. It really is um, an honor um, to to have you spend this time with us today. 
and please stay well, stay safe, and look forward to our next conversation. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you again for joining us for Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers. We hope you enjoyed, and we hope to see you again soon for the next episode.